Shut up and sit down. Nino, Carol, and Siri are trapped in a castle with a monster. Is this the monster? Where is the monster? How does this all tie together? Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert, and I'm here this week uh, after a bit of a winter break. I hope you guys enjoyed your holidays, uh, and I'm here today with my brother, Luke. How are you doing, Luke? Hey, everybody. Doing great. We also got Abby, our little Yorkie, uh, seated in his lap. So if you hear any dog noises, that's that's uh, what's going on there. This week, we are going to discuss The Witcher Season 2, specifically and most prominently the opening episode of the season, what I think is arguably the best episode of the show to date, as well as, you know, the show in sort of broader terms, just kind of discussing some things. I want to keep it relatively spoiler light, so the only major spoilers we'll have will be for this first episode of Season 2, which I really do think can more or less stand on its own. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out and come back and listen to this podcast. All right, with all that said, uh, let's jump right in. Part of the reason I wanted to talk about this episode was it kind of gets back to what season one had a lot of, which were these, you know, monster of the week, like classic contained procedural-esque episodes um, that really let us tell a contained story in an hour, you know, 50 minutes. And there's a lot of, I think, really direct craft you can pull from that. But I mean, first of all, I want to hear, you know, what are your thoughts on this episode? And what, what are your, were your first reactions to it? Yeah, I mean, it stands out. Um, certainly of that sort of like fairy tale episodic nature, like I think some of the best parts of Witcher season one were. And I would say too, in the, in the sort of, it, it stands more as an outlier for the rest of season two, which becomes much more of like a central narrative driven story, um, where, where plots build from episode to episode and there's, you know, suspense and connections and mystery all around sort of primary conflicts. Whereas this story, you know, this story both in setting and in characters and in conflict, is much more narrow. And it's fantastic. I mean, it's freaky, monster antagonist character, it's mysterious, it's tragic, and you, you know, you get a large dose of Geralt, which isn't always the case in all of the episodes going forward, or at least you get less of him, whereas him and Ciri... Are, are basically your primary protagonists of this episode, and obviously of the series as a whole, but certainly to a greater extent and the more contained story we get in the first episode of season two. And I, and I do think that probably plays a role in why I think it's such a good episode, just that it focuses so much on Geralt and Ciri, who really we have come to be really emotionally connected to, that mm-hmm. we have connected a lot with, who drive a lot of the story. And so it doesn't necessarily have a lot of the, the flab you could say that some of the other episodes have. It really sticks with our main heroes and follows their emotional journeys as they grow. And you really see Geralt and Ciri begin to have more of a familial relationship. Ciri, you know, kind of her mini arc in this episode is learning to accept Geralt's paternal orders, to listen to him, to trust that he knows what he's talking about and he's not just full of shit. But I, I think you kind of briefly, when you were listing out a lot of sort of the, the thematics of this episode, touched on, in a broad sense, a lot of the things I wanted to talk about, first of which is mystery. And I, I want to open up with the teaser, uh, the opening scene of the episode, and how it lays the groundwork for the mystery that really is the main plot thread throughout the episode, right? Mm-hmm. The mystery of uh, the castle, the, the monster in the castle, and what it is that's mm-hmm. killing all the people um, in this snow-capped land. Right. 
And so we open up, if, you know, as a quick reminder, with just a family of nobodies, not with any of our main characters, not even the side characters, where they are seeking refuge after the Battle of Sodden in a town that is like a ghost town, seemingly abandoned. And we never see the monster, but a monster picks them off. It's a major one by winter one. storm. It's nighttime. You Very know, atmospheric. Sort of, yeah, like the horror environment is set. We'll we'll get into the the horror vibes of it all later, but I think it is places the strengths of The Witcher as a unique show, which it, it yeah. this episode really feels like it leans into its identity as being a show about you know confronting the not only the thematics of like well what is a monster you know mm-hmm. humans are the real monsters being sort of the main one, but also leans into the horror vibes and the, the gore of it all and the scares of it all and the the gothic atmosphere that I think really makes. The Witcher stand out as a fantasy show. You know, it has those horror elements that I don't necessarily think a lot of other shows lean into as much. And that really makes it stand out in the television landscape, which is something to, you know, keep in mind when you're crafting a show is what what is your show's identity? What is the core of it? And what then, you know, should you lean into as you develop your seasons? Now, getting back to the mystery of, well, what is this monster? Kind of a classic monster of the week scenario that you might see on a like procedural TV show like Grimm or Supernatural or something. Like, there's something killing these people. We obviously know our monster hunter is going to have to face it down. What is, you know, what is it? What's the story here? You get your first real sort of development and hint at it when... Geralt and Ciri show up at our sort of main location in the episode, which is Novellan's castle. We continue to see the mystery develop. At first, you know, Novellan hops out. He's monstrous. He comes at Geralt. You think, oh, this is it. This is the monster, right? But you quickly find out, oh, no, he's friendly. He's pleasant. But there is a monster. We know. So is it him? Is he hiding his true, like, heart, the true nature? How is this developing? And you get fairly early on his sort of exposition of how he got his curse. But you know, and Geralt knows, most importantly, that he's not telling the full story. There's more going on here. It leads into sort of the gradual seeding of this mystery that I think plays out really artfully, where they don't, pardon my crudity, but uh, the writers don't blow their load right at the start, where you it really ups the tension and the suspense of the episode you know, it is that bomb under the table, as I've uh, talked about in previous episodes, that you know there's a monster, and you know Geralt and Ciri are trapped in a castle with a monster. Is this the monster? Where is the monster? How does this all tie together? Right. You know, Novellin is being kind of shady, not telling Geralt everything. No. What's going on here? And by gradually revealing the information and really having Geralt and Ciri both separately kind of pursue it from different angles, we get to see not only the characters be active, but see the mystery gradually revealed it like a classic whodunit and you know to that point which is really interesting it manipulates the audience in a certain way and that that is primarily through their trust of characters right through you know how much Nevelyn like is he bloodthirsty you know and and even when they introduce what will turn out to be sort of this primary monster antagonist he shares a, a little tidbit with Siri when they're alone about how when he first transformed into his current like monstrous state, he kills or eats like some people. Like he he reveals like this, his servants. Yeah, the servants that that were in the castle with them. He and killed so, them all. Yeah. And so you do still get this moment even after we've already been introduced to this other character. Who when we're introduced to her, uh, Verena, she's not necessarily hostile. 
So we are like, oh, is, she's probably the thing that, you know, she's climbing down from the ceiling. She was spying on Siri. Like, she They're was, doing freaky camera yeah, work. She, like was she probably the thing that, you know, right. took those people out at the start of the episode? I think so. But then you get this moment with Nevelyn. Now, you know, I, I definitely think on my original viewing of the episode, I never once doubted that it wasn't her. Just like by the way that first sequence goes down with that family. Like the you monsters hear the screech clearly sort too, of, yeah, yeah, screech. And it's clearly like aerial to some yeah. degree uh there's also a hint of femininity in kind of its cry it has kind of a siren cry that yeah. you hear in the opening and so certainly Navellan wouldn't necessarily fit our expectation of what a creature that would make that right. noise and plus from what we see of him you know he's for how monstrous he is he's still very much grounded like a human whereas you know this monster's preying on from early on, not just that opening sequence, but when we see the the animal carcasses preying on like creature living beings and creatures in the whole like area surrounding the castle and ghost town. So it's very mobile. Where we don't we get the sense, you know, he's stuck in the castle for the most part. You know, he's on his feet, but while he is potentially dangerous and you know they leave it up to question until Geralt has this moment of realization of oh my gosh yeah I know what's here with us like it's you know and he, he names it the Bruxa uh, and, and it sets up for the main conflict of the episode for the sort of the climax but all the way up until that point they still sort of toy with can you trust Nevelyn? Is he a danger to Siri? Geralt almost directly confronts him about that. And with the fact that he lied about Verena, you know, it leaves the audience too to question, you know, his intentions of protecting and hosting Geralt and more importantly, Siri safely. Going off of everything you're saying there, uh, which I, I think, you know, you have a bunch of great points there about sort of the red herrings of it all and how mm-hmm. Nevelyn plays. And I agree, I don't think it's necessarily that surprising that Novellan isn't the monster we see in the opening or we actually don't see rather. I think this episode is such a great example of the ways in which mystery and suspense can sort of work hand in hand. You know, when I was in film school, I was taught that there are two very different things and that you should, Alfred Hitchcock was famously was like, I don't make mysteries. I don't like mysteries. Mysteries are cheap. Suspense movies are what I make. And that was sort of what my professor was trying to push on me, which always rubbed me the wrong way because I was always a big fan of mysteries. And I think this episode is like further proof that really they can be complementary tensions or or sources of tension Mm -hmm. where it's the classic horror monster dilemma, the Jaws dilemma of you never see the monster. So it's that much scarier. Mm -hmm. You know, that's almost why, you know, it's not Novellin early on when you're first introduced to him, because you're like. Well, we see him suddenly, and he's not that scary. Like, that's not the horror monster. We, as the audience, know it's like we're waiting for the reveal. This is not, in terms of the pacing and the structure of the episode, like we know is like, this is too early. We're not going to get the monster yet. And so we continue to feel that suspense, and we have, you know, the creaking in the attic. I think the writers know, right, that you know that whatever's creaking in the attic, the quote, the the cat, Yeah. yeah, that's the threat. Right. And that's that gradual building of suspense that you know this thing is dangerous, is bloodthirsty. But you keep it off screen and you continue to build up the mystery of like, well, what is this thing? And then once you get to Novellan's castle, it becomes clear. And what is its tie to Novellan? And now I'd come in. I knew this uh, story. It was based on a short story, um, which I think it's really neat that they continue to tie the Witcher short stories into the more serialized narrative. But it's kind of a tale of Beauty and the Beast, just, you know, in a classic fucked up subversive Witcher way. And that's something that I think is really interesting, the way that they combine, like Beauty and the Beast, uh, mystery and suspense to sort of the mystery 
accents the suspense so that even though there's not a ton of action scenes, even though there's not a ton of scares throughout the episode, you're constantly on the edge of your seat, you know, wondering where's the monster? What does the monster want? What is Novellan's tie to the monster? Is Novellan dangerous? Mm -hmm. And it really makes the narrative feel very propulsive, but also very like gothic and atmospheric as Mm -hmm. well. There's an important thing to know, because this is a season two, viewers of The Witcher are already primed to have sort of this central issue or concern be around serious safety. Now, you can argue like, oh, there's no need to actually be that scared for her. Or, you know, like people can be confident she'll have plot armor. But right, like all of season one, she's being chased. She's fleeing. She's, you know, trying to run away. She ultimately escapes danger and makes her way to Geralt. And now we're finally in this first instance where Geralt and her are together. Their relationship is really beginning. Um, and they're learning to trust each other and understand each other, find out what the purpose of them being together is. And it's a long journey that courses all of season two. But I bring this up because in episode one, not only we already mentioned, Siri has this moment with, was I saying right? Novellan? Novellan. Novellan. And he sort of recants this sort of bloodthirsty flashback to, to him dealing with this, this new nature of his curse, but also with Farina. Right? There's a confrontation between the two of them. And while neither of these confrontations ultimately turn hostile or dangerous for Siri, it is that mix of mystery and suspense you're talking about. Mystery. Can she trust this person she's talking to? Is she, you know, is she safe or not? Suspense. She's potentially in danger any moment now. Both of these beings are face to face with her. Geralt's not around in either situation. How does she respond? What does she do? And ultimately, both of those moments lead up to the big, like, confrontation and Siri maybe developing trust with Verena and ultimately the tragedy of all the characters. But both Verena and Velen tem- attempting to make a play at the end to keep Siri with them in the castle. And once again, it's like Siri's, you know, she's threatened in this case. It's like her freedom and autonomy. And, and it's just very well done moments. You know, Siri being this uh, young protagonist makes her feel very vulnerable, even though we know she's extraordinarily powerful. And she's definitely more naive. I mean, that's a big tension in the episode is like it's you know, it's a classic setup where you have, you know, the older cynic and the younger naive girl and the way they have to bounce off each other. Trust the monsters. And then Geralt ultimately has to show her is like at the end of the day, you know, they have a nature that you can't deny. Um, that that will threaten you and your safety, and and we see that in Verena's actions, the Brux's actions, and ultimately taking Siri sort of hostage for a moment, and then, uh, ironically enough, it's Novellan comes in to save the day, not killing her, but sort of incapacitating her, and then and she tries to kill him. Right, she's and approaching. Well, yeah, but it wouldn't have worked. We know that's true. Uh, but ultimately, Geralt strikes the one blow that would be fatal, which is decapitating the Bruxa because the Bruxa can clearly survive serious wounds but obviously uh, decapitation it can't come back from meanwhile Novellan comes back to life every time he dies it's part of his curse we get it but ironically killing the Bruxa ends Novellan's curse but he loved her and you get this tragic ending but I, I think it's neat they play up sort of the vulnerability of Siri for the stakes and that happened a lot early in season one you know it's sort of like the monster's actually threatening people, you know? And then ultimately, it's up to Geralt to, like, confront the threat. But there's a tragedy there, too. Yes. You know, as you touched on right at the start of this podcast, that it is a romance. Yeah. It is Beauty and the Beast. 
which is like neat in a very like meta perspective and how the thematics of this story contrast with Beauty and the Beast. But I'm, for the purpose of the podcast, much more interested in terms of like, how do they create that romance? And I think one of the really, it gets back to what you were saying about little moments and a lot of the details in the writing and the scene work is specifically, I'm thinking of the subtext of the scene where Novellan and Siri are sitting before the fireplace and he plays the little uh, light show yeah. about the, the elf warrior and the human mage who fell in love and ultimately died tragically and had a baby, which minor spoiler alert for Witcher, but that story comes back later on and is really important to the whole mythology of the show. So fun fact, and you didn't know that, Luke, but it's a thing to look forward to and keep in mind. Yeah. Um, but that story is a neat little piece of world building. But what it's really doing in that scene is building up Novellan's character and the subtext that he is a romantic. He's searching for connection and love in all the wrong places, obviously. I mean, you even see him have sort of another little moment is that when Siri comes in dressed in her dress, she's a child. But he still has this reaction where he's like, as if she was of age with him, like he as if he almost could it's fall in creepy. love with her yeah, it no, is the, it's the a little they, creepy the which i think is creepy. why they kind of want to lean into to sort of set up that oh he raped the priestess is that there is this monster inside him you right. know this sort of like predator right even in his, like his human state right it's just a part of who he is which is why they argue that the bruxa and he are like true love and i i kind of chafe a little bit against that sort of the, the messaging there a little bit but i think that it's part of the really interesting setup that's built up in those little moments that he is a romantic you see that humanity that's what makes the story tragic yeah is he has a good side he's very affable he's very fun and funny and you know he's got all his little magic tricks but there is that tension right it, there's the monster there. it's worth remembering ultimately you know where his and the says verena's love comes from right and he originally describes to Siri, she asks, like, I can't imagine what it's like to be this lonely. And he's like, it's the worst, right? It's, it is the ultimate despair one can experience. And ironically, he's talking about that, like, in the present tense. But we know that was something he had long experienced till he found the Bruxa, who the Bruxa, being a monster itself, wasn't afraid of him, like other human beings would have been, right? right. Who, causing him his isolation. So therefore, he could live in the company of this Bruxa. And and so his love for it or her um, ultimately, you know, originates out of this deep loneliness and despair, right? It's Absolutely. like desperation. Uh, and the Bruxa... You get a sense of that with her as well. And this, for sure. Especially the, the kind of her real introduction with Siri, where, she, you know, she wakes up with Siri in bed and she talks about, like, they'll, they'll hunt you. Humans kill everything. Right. Like, there's this... Again, subtext, the subtext of that scene is that she's never been able to live in, like, a society, right. never had right. connections before right. Novellan, that the first person who accepted her was Novellan, and likewise, the first person who could accept Novellan was her. The right. catch to that is they not only found that acceptance with each other, the acceptance came out of they're both murderers, right. and they accepted that about each other. They're like, oh, that's just a flaw, <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like, I can look past it because you at least love me. And, and I'm not alone when I'm with you. Right. Yeah, it's it's worth really examining, too, Verena and Siri's relationship briefly, you know, in the episode and briefly and why, like, Verena does choose to sort of peacefully embrace Siri, whereas she seems to kill everything else, including Novellan himself, right? Like, they use the curse to sort of... He says it's to help, like, her, her cravings for blood, right, and eating people, but, or not just people, but any living thing. <laughs> But ultimately, too, it's like 
he says that, but at the same time, he knows she's going around eating people and things anyway. But with Siri, it's different. You know, she approaches Siri peacefully, and it's cl- she makes very clearly on she knows something's different about Siri. And this is something that, for the sake of spoilers in season two, we can't necessarily get into, but that Siri is different from any person. Well, right? we know she has magical powers. Right. Like, she's, that much is clear from... paranormal yeah. about her, right? Supernatural, yeah. you know. She's, she's clearly super strong magically, and, and where that comes from, we don't necessarily know, but... Verena recognizes something special about her and even says, Geralt's going to call you a monster. She, she responds to Siri, are, you know, are you a monster just because you're different? You know, she recognizes this different nature about Siri. And something about that chooses her to be very peaceful and tolerate Siri. In a way, it's almost like she doesn't with, I mean, she does with Novellan. But yet, with Novellan, she like obviously like eats him on like a nightly basis. <laughs> but with Siri, it's like, was like i i can have another this other for some reason yes yeah, some sort of young woman approach. like uh, yeah it's interesting I, I mean i think that's definitely open to interpretation about what it is about siri specifically yeah. you know it's clearly a combination of like the magic and probably her femininity and like right. some something there and i and i think it gets to the core of the the loneliness and the humanity of the broxa but also that she essentially the monster in her that she essentially tries to manipulate siri into sure. loving her and to having sympathy for because like the brooks is a tragic character she has these urges that she cannot control but at the same time it doesn't excuse the fact that she's a murderer but getting into that scene work you know with siri and the writing craft of it is the brooks works perfectly siri does not feature into the short story at all so the writer's right. room entirely made this up and i think it works really well that it sort of challenges siri's flaws and her worries you know, she talks about the Geralt that she has dreams. I think at the end of the episode, she talks about how she's like afraid she's, she'll burn everything. Yeah. And, you know, the ultimate catharsis is Geralt's like, you you face your fear and you won't. And regardless, I'll be there to protect you. I won't let anything happen to right. you. And sort of cementing their relationship. But Siri's struggling with the fact that she is different. Right. And that she's on her own and she's afraid of being alone. She's, in a very direct way, a parallel to oh, yeah. Novellan and uh, the Brooks, uh, Verena, that they're what she's afraid of becoming because of just innate parts of her. Now, of course, the the big difference is that Siri is not a murderer and they are murderers and Novellan right. is a rapist. And I think that's a notable difference, too, more on like what this episode tells us about Siri's character as a whole, which obviously is like, you know, spoil it becomes like the central con- thread, you know, yeah. conflict and thread of the season two, right? Like, Siri starts to connect all these different stories as she discovers who she is and, you know, why she has this power and whatnot. And it plays importantly into sort of this dichotomy for Siri or this, you know, this internal tension that has external consequences for the rest of the world that Siri must face, right? Like, who is she? Is that necessarily one thing? Is there, could she become multiple different things? For people familiar with this story, for people who've watched season two, you might understand what I'm referencing, but in that she chooses to be friendly and peaceful with Verena, a monster, right? And she's able to have this peace with a totally different being, a being that's supposed to be violent, you know? And there's this sort of then greater phenomenon with Siri too. Is she, you know, this creator of peace? Or is she this, you know, destroy. does she continue, yeah, right. does she destroy, does she continue conflict and fear, right? Does she, like any other human being, see Verena and get scared, right? And, and continue that fight, that fight or flight sort of interaction with monsters? Or, 
is she so powerful? Is some something about her nature able to create a different interaction? And I think you can use that connection between her and Verena as a, maybe like a microcosm for the greater possibilities for series role in this universe. Well, and I think that's exactly what what they're sort of doing. And the intention there is like right. thematically and on a character level, strict just like challenging her and her arc. Right. And I think it's one of, I, I would say, arguably the main concern with the entire show is these characters balancing the monster and the the like the murderer and the creator you know Geralt's witchers are killers sure but he has so much love in him and so much of what drives him is his love yeah and where the balance is there and what what that dividing line is and I think even his inner relationship with Yennefer which we won't get too deep into you see that as sort of a parallel between Novellan and uh the Bruxa that like a big reason why Geralt and Yennefer connect is because mm-hmm. they sort of see themselves in one another and see, you know, and accept one another for how broken they are and the cruelty they can do, but also their capacity for love. It's it's an interesting way to kind of take your, like, your monster of the week and make it really thematically potent and really potent emotionally for the characters yeah. and therefore for the audience. I'm going to sidestep a bit because I think that's a great transition point for talking about what I think we're going to talk about this in really broad strokes Mm -hmm. but it does feature in this episode what I think is one of the weaker parts of season two as a whole and you you see this widely criticized on the internet but I don't think people necessarily talk about what it is about the writing that makes it a hard sell for a lot of people and that is Fringilla's arc throughout the season Mm. and I think focusing on episode one is a really great focus point not only for because Fringilla does feature here not in a major role uh, not like she does later on in the season but also because of the Bruxa Nivellen, where I would posit that the reason people struggle to connect to Frangilla's storyline, which is a more political one, you know, she's on the bad guy side, uh, and she's dealing with sort of the politics of the bad people for much mm-hmm. of the season. I would posit that the reason people don't connect to it, even though it's arguably very important for the story and it's tied into things, is because it's hard to pin down exactly where her motivations are coming from. I would say, at least for me personally, it wasn't until the end of the season that I started really feeling anything for her and when she really made some big power moves and had some tragic things happen to her because you suddenly then could understand her motivations. While compared, like, she she remains mysterious, but not in a way where it's like, oh, there's a mystique to her. It's like, we should understand her. We should follow her. And I think it was a missed opportunity throughout the season to not expound more upon her backstory and, like, what was it about her upbringing or her relationship with, oh, Abby is getting up. What was it about Frangilla's backstory that really drove her to join Nilfgaard to become the woman she is, to make the decision she does? Novellan, you understand his relationship with his father. You understand gradually over throughout the episode his, you know, original sin, you could say. Mm-hmm. You understand the things that corrupted him. And so you really get a feel for him as a three-dimensional character. Yeah. While with her, you really only just see her kind of act, but you don't necessarily understand, well, why are you doing what you're doing? Right. You know? Like, you get some... She talks a bit about her I, philosophies and feeling trapped in, like, the Mage Order uh, at Eretuza, but, like, yeah. it, it's not necessarily as, like, fully developed I think as you get some more stories. in episode two, which I know we're not going to get into. But I think, you know, her moment with the the sort of... I don't want to give too much about it, but like darker figure, you know what I'm talking about? Right. That sort of does do this, you know, introspective dive with the the three characters it interacts with. 
I think that reveals a little at least about her desires or, or maybe her objectives, right? You you get you know, you get more of a sense the longer we see her around Yennefer, which we didn't really get at the end of season one, that sure while she's serving with Nilfgaard, uh, but we see this in episode one of se- season two already. She's serving the White Flame. She's serving Emir. You get the sense that while she's serving Nilfgaard and the White Flame and Emir, that she's very much acting on her own accord, right? And and she she is acting independently, right? She's not just some like blind zealot. Obviously, that gets played on throughout season two. We get the sense that her loyalty might be extremely conditional, right? As long as it serves her objective or her interests. And ultimately, you know, it's going to come to a point where it won't and she's going to face turning points and whatnot. And she deals with some of that stuff throughout season two. Going against that in a way is I think you you understand what her motives are, but not necessarily why she has them. That's fair. And I think yeah. even some of her actions are contradictory and not in a way where you're like, oh, a, per- a real person is contradictory, but like... It's seemingly she has a relationship that develops throughout the season that she's like, oh, this is my first real partnership. Well, it's like, well, why did you never have that at Eratusa? Yeah, you know what? What was it? it's like? It's hard what to pin down you? her sort of like emotionality. What is it is about her? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's then hard to connect with her because it's like, like she she's doing things that we're not necessarily inherently gonna morally side with. So especially when you compare her with like someone like Geralt and Ciri or even like a side character like Yaskir where you understand why they are the way they are and like what is motivating all of their actions. Yeah. While with her, it's hard to sort of pin down. It's like, what is it inside of you that's broken? And that can work with characters if you if they are really kind of about their mystique like Amir is at this point, the you know, one of our sort of big bads, the Emperor of Nilfgaard. But that isn't really the focus of her character. We see her character a lot. There's not a mystique to her character. The question right. is not, what is she going to do, per se? It's not a, a mystery, her story. No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and part of what makes this so then more difficult for, for processing season two and going through the story is that ultimately, you know, desire, hope, and despair, you know, and what compels those things ends up being like, you know, sort of the central thematic concept. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it arrives to be like the culmination of the season two conflict and right. and, and the climax we get near the end of the season. One thing I, I'd say, too, with critiques about Fringilla's story and, and something I definitely think season two struggled with way more than season one is once again, you have many side stories, right? And so you don't have this constant focus on Geralt and constant focus on Ciri, but their stories are actually aligned for most, for the most part. But the, you know, the problem becomes the web gets thinner and thinner and thinner. Every side story gets smaller stories and character arcs within it and smaller conflicts and whatnot, right? Like Tris Marigold has her own thing going on while Tissaia has her own thing going on while Yennefer and so on and so forth. And even with Fringilla, there's like a bunch of these different side characters involved in the, you know, the greater story that sort of revolves around her and all of them have their own hopes and objectives and tactics and decisions they have to make. And what ultimately happens is is it just feels like a lot of storytelling that's supposed to take place doesn't. And and things happen and, and characters end up in situations or make certain decisions that ultimately the audience doesn't necessarily get to see take place or understand that's occurring until like 
you reach a certain point or it just never happens. And and so it just feels like to me that they, they tried to paint on season two in such a broad canvas and, and at some, you know, and you can see blotches where they just ran out of paint or they only had thin strokes. And so there's almost like holes or, or just missing pieces that should be there but aren't there. So I'm going to say we're just going to do a section and you can I'll have in the liner notes where we stop talking full spoilers. But I want to talk full spoilers because I don't actually know what it is specifically you're referring to. And I'm curious about talking about that because I think this could get yeah. to something, you know, very craft related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're, we're in the spoiler territory. Full spoilers now. for okay, season great. two. Let's stay with Frangilla then. Like you talked about, we never really under get an an insight into her character, why her character is seeking power the way she is, right? right? Building these alliances. You never fully understand where this ambition really comes from. With the elves too, you get the very basic story of survival, but there's a lot of dynamics happening within the elves. Francesca, you know, her relationship, I don't think that's very like clear um, you mean with philavandrel yeah the, with philavandrel like right king. it's just yeah. like suddenly you're like oh wow so they've been together this whole time like yeah, right. it's, it's his child too wow obviously you get sort of the hope that the elven child represents and whatnot which i think is but, one of the more potent parts of that whole subplot yeah and when the baby inevitably dies i found that really yeah. powerful yeah, and, no, and shocking and it is interesting that like there are those other parts where you're right there are holes where you're like Oh, they did. They just like didn't set that up. Like it was not clear, right? You know. So then it was hard to care about Philavandrel and Francesca's relationship, and like it's still unclear. Like, are they even really partners, or do they just like bone for the yeah. baby? I'd say too. It, it it becomes not super clear too. Like Francesca obviously wants to have the Elven child and give a future for her people, but too like what ultimately is the goal of the Elven people, right? Like early on, it seems like oh they're surviving. We know in the past that's what they, their goal is. It's sort of rebelling against human empires. And, and then, you know, for obvious reasons with the Deathless One and the Oaths Fringilla and Francesca make, they have to form their alliance. But you never really get, like, so the elves are trying to join the Nilfgaardian army? Like, are they are they planning to make an offensive move? Or, you know, are they here to just sort of There's settle really in Zentrea? Right. Yeah. There's just sort of missing storytelling going on. And this isn't just one of what I would describe as, like, maybe one of the main three or two sort of arcs that have little smaller Absolutely. stories happening within them and, and that's the problem is it's like it's sort of a- ambiguous where all this is fitting i mean um pardon if you hear our dog abby barking yeah. in the background you have the eratus in politics and you have like stregobors doing something and dykstra's doing something are they aligned that's not super clear you have the assassin and mercenaries sent after Geralt, Rings. which is obviously something played for the future but it's like who are they? Like, what's going on? And a lot of that just sort of happens, and, and the story keeps moving, and these characters keep acting and making decisions. And while you're more familiar with them on screen, you you don't really get a sense of who they are, where they're coming from. And I, I would say, you know, overall, it's a, the case. The story's much more controlled, I think, when it relates to Ciri and Geralt and Kyr Morin and Ciri's struggle and becoming who she is and figuring out who she is. But, like, you know, you got characters dropping in and out. You know, like, Triss shows up and she's, like, trying to to guide uh, Ciri. But, like, you know, she ultimately comes scared of her and confused on her path. And so it just feels like there's there is a good story in here and there's a lot to like. And ultimately, I enjoyed season two. But it just definitely feels like at various moments or with various subplots and arcs and characters, there's missing pieces. I think all of what you're saying is really interesting. I agree with 100% of it. 
And I think it actually gets back to some of what I was talking about earlier. I, I sort of mentioned the anecdote of in film school, I was, you know, taught is like, don't write mystery, write suspense. Mm-hmm. But what the teacher was really trying to teach, really, when you get down to it, was you don't want things to be mysterious just like, just to be confuse the audience. Right. You don't want to confuse the audience needlessly. Like, if you're, there's a difference between writing a mystery and not writing like enough, not showing the audience enough, confusing them, yeah, leaving them wondering like, well, what the hell is going on? Why is this character doing what they're doing? Who the hell is this person? Like that sort of thing. And I think that's sort of exactly what you're talking about, that these aren't supposed to be mysterious. It's not like we're supposed to be wondering like, is Dijkstra working with Stragobor? Like Dijkstra is sort of a more mysterious, enigmatic character. But even then it's like, what what are the alliances like? It's not like Game of Thrones where you're like, oh, there's the backstabbing, but they they set that up. It's like right. who can you they're trust? not even setting anything up, yeah. and it's not even clear who the like who's behind this plot or whatnot. Right. You it, 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 that's like not even the issue. To the end of the the very end of the season when they reveal Amir um, and all that, it's like oh he was behind the baby's assassination, which like cool, but. What? We were suddenly thinking the entire time that Kahir was, and why did Kahir think Act he was like behind he was. it if yeah. he wasn't? Like, what what's going on there? And there is a lot of, like, uncertainty where it's, we're not sure what the TV show is trying to tell us. Right. You know? And it's not a mystery. They're not writing a mystery. We know when they're writing a mystery because they did it really well. You know, with season two, episode one, and, and series background, and sort of how the, they unveil the mythology behind her prophecy and everything. What's going on here, though, you know, with... with any insert any number of characters right mm-hmm. and i think that absolutely is a great point that like you need to give the audience information you need to show that you can't just be like oh yeah you know like we uh called each other up you know two weeks ago and had this conversation off screen that is really a crucial turning point for your character and it explains why you know i'm going to go chase after siri like you have to see them make the decision to go chase after siri i'm just like kind of making stuff up out of thin air but no oh, yeah it, it really being vague is the enemy. Never be vague. Always be very specific. And that kind of gets to uh, a little scene note. Well, before we get into uh, the last little bit of scene notes I want to talk about, is there is there anything else about sort of season Y that you wanted to talk about? One thing I appreciate that such a, a wide weaving story does is that a lot of these stories are ultimately interacting with each other. And we, you know, it sort of becomes more and more clear how Siri's the common thread and why she's the common thread. But part of that, too, is not only for the audience, it's really neat to follow the characters on those journeys as well, right? Like, not only did we reach that point, but the characters do, in large Mm -hmm. part, by the end of Season 2. Season 2 has a lot of characters we knew in Season 1 meeting each other for the first time and having these weird interactions and an unfamiliarity that the audience, we, we are very much familiar with, you know, both of the different characters who they are, where they come from, and, like, the stories they've been through, whereas they're like, oh, like, this is some person I, you know, I have some degree of separation from, but I now know, like, I'm thinking we just watched episode one again, to say and Geralt's first time meeting each other, right, and how, like, connected their lives are and ultimately become throughout season two, uh, even though, you know, that's the only time they've ever interacted with each right. other in the entire arc of the plot, and yet, like, Ultimately, their plots come to reach a heading point by the end of the season where they're all like facing the same central issue or whatnot around Siri. And so I thought that was super interesting. You know, it goes from Frangilla and, and, and Yennefer together, Frangilla, Francesca, 
Dara gets looped in, and he's with that whole environment, right? Yeah, like, the way all the different threads yeah, like interweave. I and think that's ultimately done in a really cool way, and that's one of the more neat things to follow with every episode is like which character is going to end up in which story? Istrid and Geralt, right, meeting each other and going on the like. It's just super neat. And so while there are a bunch of missing pieces, I ultimately think the complexity and the beauty of like the overlapping and interweavingness of the the web of the story is really like that's that's a really neat thing to follow and part of because you I, root for all these different characters and then to see them really get to interact and whatnot it's well, almost like that's basically exactly what i was yeah. going to say is the the core of why that's so fun is you have all of these characters yeah who it's almost like the joy of when you like write fan fiction is like yeah. putting them together like characters you wouldn't think would like normally go together and like seeing them bounce off each other and when you have an yeah. ensemble cast that's what you want to do right you know you want to weave in Geralt and Istrid you want to have Tissaia and you know Tristan and Vesemir right? you know it's, it's like these, it's, these unlikely sort of, pairs yeah. it's like fun to see how these characters would interact and like it, totally. it always is a pleasant surprise that's that is a great little detail when you write these ensemble shows to find the way to interweave all the different plot lines so that you can get the most out of all of your characters. And that's pretty different from season one, right? Right, like, where everything's very All separate. the different side plots, you know, you have Yennefer and Geralt and all of their meetings, but for the most part, like, that's because that's their story, right? That's the story of Yennefer and Geralt and their relationship. For the most part, all these separate stories occur separately, you know, and then the the one overlap you get at the end is Siri and Geralt meeting each other. And it's almost like that moment where they meet each other sets off the greater the story, story that then yeah. happens in season two. I mean I think that's exactly what it does. And right. I, I one other thing while we're talking full season spoilers I want to touch on is there was some controversy behind the character of Eskel from book fans uh who were like in the books, Eskel, who's you know one of the witchers, he's the one who turns right. into a tree person. Episode two, yeah. Uh He's not really a major character. Like, it was way overblown by a lot of the book fans. But yeah. he is, like, he doesn't die. He doesn't become a leshy. None of that happens. That's all created right. for the show. And so the showrunner was answering kind of why they did that. And I thought her answer brought up some really interesting points from an adaptational and a writing perspective, which is that she was saying, you know, Geralt, for much of the book, Blood of Elves, which the season is largely based on, is just kind of sitting around and is not doing a lot. And they're like, well, you can't have your big action hero just sitting around. So we had to create a story that would drive him to journey and investigate and fight monsters. You know, that's what we promised with this show. And so that's what Geralt needs to do. And so he has to investigate Ciri's powers. He has to go out on a journey. He has to study the obelisks. And this all takes off because of Eskel and what happens there. And I think that's really smart and a really great point that, like, you really need your main characters to continually be active and continue to pursue things. Mm-hmm. But where it goes wrong and what I think rubbed a lot of people the wrong way is that Eskel, uh, with the showrunner Lauren Hissrich, who I think is a very talented writer, but where she maybe whiffed it a bit was that she talks about how Geralt has seen Eskel, who he's, you know, grown up with, who he's friends with, who he loves like a brother. And he's like, something's different about Eskel. Eskel is acting different, and it's like a big part of the tension of the second episode. But we, the audience, don't know that Eskel's different because right. we're introduced to him already different. We never see them flash back together. Like we don't know what they were like, what their original dynamic was like. Right. So there's no tension there. The we just think Eskel's missing, a dickhead. More missing storytelling. Right? He's just exactly. It's it's that missing storytelling where you're like, you haven't set that up. Yeah. And if you don't set it up, you can't pay it off. So there's a whole layer to the Eskel storyline that we don't have. Because it's not in the show. Yeah. And uh, again, it gets back to exactly what you're talking about. The missing storytelling is you have to set things up if you're going to pay them off. 
the audience has to understand where the characters are coming from emotionally. We don't understand emotionally that Geralt is like Eskel's different. Something's different. He's acting different. And the tension there. Likewise, we don't understand why Fringilla is doing all the things she's doing. We kind of understand like her end goals, but we don't necessarily understand like, well, where does this come from? What is it inside of you that's motivating you to do this? Leaving things too vague and unsaid, like maybe you feel like you have to do it to cut down on time. Like maybe this is based on Netflix notes. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but it's a mistake because it ultimately costs you the emotional storytelling and makes it hard to connect and certainly to put the pieces together in terms of what am I supposed to be feeling right now? Kind of tying into that sort of the, the, what motivates the characters, what drives them, that character wants. We're going to end full season spoilers unless is there any last thing you want to say nope okay let's do it uh I, and i just want to talk about some specific scene work some specific pieces of craft which is more often than not and this is a thing you'll hear a lot of times throughout in sort of books on writing and stuff you want character once to drive a scene you don't just want characters sitting around like just talking about how the sky is blue unless the sky is blue is like has a subtext beneath it for you know how sad they are or something you know like a specific scene I'm thinking of is a scene that seemingly is r- rather innocuous, not important, early on of Geralt and Ciri sitting by the fire. Uh, Ciri has a nightmare and she wakes up and Geralt starts to talk to her about like his own nightmares and like kind of jokes about, oh, rock trolls, like trying to fuck me. Like that was, it sticks with you, mm-hmm. the image. It's seemingly not like that important a scene. It's a character building scene, but it is driven by their wants. It starts with Geralt trying to reach out to Ciri what Geralt is doing there, what that scene really is about, is Geralt trying to make a connection with Ciri mm-hmm. and to build a bond with her, you know, to be this paternal figure for her. And she then, in turn, tries to figure out more about Geralt, about Kaer Morin, about Yennefer. You know, for much of the episode, she's like, well, where are we going naturally? She's like, right. I want answers. I want answers, Geralt. And Geralt, because he's kind of so so cold and uh closed off won't give her any and it's that dynamic that even in these more quiet character based scenes they're still driven by once you know all the scenes with novellan like Geralt's like something's up with novellan this is a case where you know something is up it's the it's the exact opposite of the eskel problem where Geralt, we understand realizes that something's wrong with novellan right novellan's not telling me everything and so when he's like interrogating Novellan or like playing the game of throwing knives and stuff you know what's motivating him and so the character wants are driving the scenes and so that there is a, a propulsion to the narrative that keeps it going that it, it doesn't just feel like you're just filling space even when you know you're maybe expositing something as broad as like well what is Kaer Morin? it's like well you're you're getting this information because Siri wants to understand like what is it that I'm like walking into what what's the belly of the beast right and likewise, if you need to exposit something, even something as basic and as relatively unimportant as like, well, what are Geralt's signs? And, and by the signs, I mean like sort of the magic he works, the little spells he does, you know, his little like force push and shit like that. The specific one that comes up in this episode is Axie, which is his mind fuckery. Like he uses it to calm down Roach. And the way they bring it up is through conflict by having Roach react to a corpse in the road. The corpse of some animal, which again, not only further builds up the mystery and the suspense of everything, but you have Roach freaking out, which then allows Geralt to use his spell, which allows uh, Ciri to ask him what it is and to kind of give away, you know, to explore some of the world building. And by doing that, rather than just having like, so do you do magic? What's your magic? Like blah, blah, blah. But having it actually like come up naturally in the story and contribute to the storytelling 
the exposition kind of gets to flow naturally with the narrative. Mm-hmm. And that, that was sort of uh, the, the big sort of scene work little points I wanted to hit before we close off. No, that's really nicely done, yeah. Then thank you, Luke, uh, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, this was a lot of fun. It was actually your idea. I uh, needed to put together an episode, and this was a great, great idea. Toss Something a we coin both... to your Witcher. Toss a coin to your Witcher. Um, they really have made some bangers with this show. Yeah. It's, I've been listening you know, to been season two soundtrack like nonstop. It's, if you hear me in the shower, I'm probably singing Burn, Butcher Burn. It was definitely one of those pandemic delays that hurt a lot. Oh, Looking yeah. Looking forward to this season because we got that first season just before, you know, it was like winter. Yeah, it was two years between them. 2020, and it was, it was phenomenal. And, um, you know, plenty of people out there are huge fans of the books and the games. So. Yeah. Before we sign off, uh, I just remind you to please consider donating to Patreon. Join our Discord. We're building up a community of up and coming writers there. And uh, consider following me on Instagram. All the socials will be linked below. With all that said, I've been your host, Carl Albert, and this is Popcraft.